Hello, welcome to my podcast. Today I'm joined by two people that identify as part of the Indian queer community. They will remain unnamed for safety and comfort reasons. Today the topic of discussion is the impact that British colonization had on the Indian LGBTQ community. The colonization of India by the British has led to a modern day culture shift in which the LGBTQ community has been severely marginalized. The force of puritanical Christianity and unjust laws throughout India has caused a transformation in Indian society, which used to incorporate progressive views of homosexual relationships and gender identities. Let's take a deep dive into discussing how this has personally affected so many Indians in the modern day. First, I'm going to start by explaining a little bit about Britain's time in India. According to several Britannica Encyclopedia articles, the British Raj lasted from 1858 until the independence and subsequent split of India and Pakistan in 1947. Far before the British Raj, India was under the management of the East India Company, which was a business that sold tea products. As it became a monopolistic trading company, it started to act as an agent that began the imperialism of India. However, after several mutinies throughout India, several in Bengal, the British government took control. In 1858, the Parliament of Britain transferred the British power over India from the East India Company to the Crown via the Government of India Act. My first question to you guys is, how do you think the split of India and Pakistan has affected the religious tension in India today? About being like what I think about the split of India and Pakistan in, in terms of religion, I think it's very pervasive and it's probably the one thing that's fueled the big divide, at least how I've seen it. I think what is most like representative of the divide is like how people who are not Hindu in India are treated. So especially with Modi's campaign and like what he's built on, which is Hindu nationalism. So I think there's a lot of mentality of like Muslims stay in Pakistan or neighboring countries and Hindus stay in India. But there is some reason where like a lot of Hindus have faced hardship from Muslims way back in the past so there's like that hatred still too but I think in terms of like specifically Indian Muslims who are living it's definitely really hard for them to like sustain our life without fear of like dying or like getting written out of history or like written out of good policies from the government yeah I completely agree do you have anything to say see yeah, so growing up in the United States, I don't get to see the tensions in India firsthand, but having parents who grew up during the tensions, I get to hear their perspective of it too. And based on the times they grew up in, it's hard for them to break away from the mindset of us versus them or India versus Pakistan. And it's so easy for our generation to judge them for their beliefs, but we weren't the ones growing up there. We have an outside different perspective of a different time. So it's very easy for us to think that their beliefs are wrong. And there's a whole generation who did grow up with the tensions and it carries over to like even outside of Pakistan of people who are in the religious minority in India, such as like the Sikhs, um, the Muslim Jains. So, and that carries over into who they elect for people in power and what types of policies they're enacting. Yeah, I completely agree. Are any of your parents like Modi supporters? So luckily my, or I don't know if this is luckily, but like 
my parents are very modern or like understand that it's not like we should hate. like personally like we we practice hinduism so like they don't buy into the hate however when i go to india especially last year it's like because my family are on my dad's side is like from the temple mm-hmm. and they are like practicing priests there's like a lot of hatred from there like it was funny watching modi news cuz it like mimicked fox news yeah so like it's it's so funny seeing the similars and i was actually trying to explain to my mom like this language that they're using is like identical to like what like white nationalists in our country do to yeah. people of color yeah i feel like they don't realize that they're the people christian male of indian it's, society of indian, exactly. <laughs> and it's funny seeing like what things so one of the things they bring up is like how hindus no longer have seats in colleges yeah. and it's just given to like the lower caste it's citizens. so like there's so many parallels yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so it's just like watching it from like because i i identify as indian and american mm-hmm. so like like seeing it from like that world view is just like it's kind of bizarre yeah yeah i completely get it i similar to the previous statement my parents don't support all of his policies but it's like what we see in america people who voted for trump not because of his hate but his economic policies yeah. and i think a lot of parents don't see that like you can't just vote for the policies without also voting for the hate and it's something that's going to be continued so something has to change those were some insightful and educated answers and that transitions right into my next point in history in which we discuss the forced and coerced conversions of indians during the british raj according to imperial fault lines christianity and colonial power in india 1818 through 1940 by Geoffrey Cox, the British Parliament employed the Church Missionary Society, which now has headquarters in southern London. In the late 19th century, Punjab's territory encompassed much of northern Pakistan and northwest India, including Delhi. By the 20th century, these parts of India were exposed to the British missionary societies that represented much of Britain and the U.S. There are many competing groups of Christian organizations trying to spread the evangelical word. The American Presbyterians, American Methodists, British Baptists, Salvation Army, and Roman Catholics. They thought they were taming the savage Indians by spreading the word of God, eliminating otherworldly religions. However, the Christians who organized the mission work were not only forcing the hands of Indians, they were forcing the hands of the people in their own government. Originally, when the British Parliament demanded that the East India Company hand over its power, the Parliament did not support the conversions of Indians to Christianity at first. In fact, many fought against it when Charles Grant and William Wilberforce, the founders of the Church Missionary Society, tried to enact the mission. However, because many of the leaders in Parliament were avid believers, it did not take long for Grant and Wilberforce to create the CMS around the year 1800, which you can probably tell was during the rule of the East India Company. In the end, the missionaries built Catholic schools all over India, transformed the education system, and coerced millions of Indians into converting to Christianity. Many Islamic leaders living in India fought back against these missionaries. One prominent leader by the name of Hazrat Mizra Golam, Ahmad participated in a 15-day debate called the Holy War, in which he fought back through the pen. How do you think Christianity has influenced the general lives of Indians in India? How do you think it has influenced your life living in America? So, when my mom was growing up in India, she went to a Catholic school, and especially around the area where she lived, Catholic schools were very prevalent, and a lot of kids were sent there. And that's how it was in the 70s to 90s. And... Ever since I've gone there now, I've actually noticed that like a lot of my cousins and family have kind of moved away from that. 
and even though my mom has been Hindu, like, since she grew up, she still had to go to, like, the masses that they did during school, and even though she might not have necessarily believed it, or, like, followed Catholicism, she was taught it, and that was kind of ingrained in her as a little kid, so... Even though she does follow Hinduism, a lot of those, I guess, beliefs and ways of life are um, prevalent to her thoughts now. And I think it was more common and accepted, especially within my family back then, because a couple of my uncles and aunts have married uh, other Catholic Indians, and that's how their kids are grown up. So I have a lot of cousins who are Indian but also Catholic, and it's very interesting to see that difference. Yeah, I think so for my family particularly, my dad grew up in like kind of a poor village where education was very hard to come by. So the only way he was like able to get education was through Catholic schools. And what he's talked about is like the schooling system, like Catholic schools, especially like elementary, middle school, were known to have like higher quality education just because they had more of an emphasis in education. So I feel like a lot of Indian people back then, at least who are our parents' age, like went to these schools to have an opportunity to leave and provide for their family. And on my mom's side, it's actually interesting because my mom's side of the family is from Kerala, which has a high population of Indian people who practice Christianity. Um, we're like, my family practices Hinduism, but I think she's grown up and my grandma has grown up with knowing people who are Christian in India. And I think I don't notice it as much when I go to India because I think Hinduism still reigns popular. And I, I don't, um, the outward effects about Christianity are not as well seen. But I think in America specifically, I think it's something that is very prevalent and sometimes can be used to like be combative against people of color yeah furthermore this pervasion of christianity throughout india encouraged the british parliament to finally pass penal code 377 in 1862 during their rule penal code 377 criminalized homosexual relations and denied non-binary third gender and transsexual individuals their right to express themselves it states whoever voluntarily has carnal intercourse against the order of nature with any man woman or animal would be punished by imprisonment or fines i feel like maybe the animal thing was necessary but definitely not the rest according to 377 the british colonial law that left an anti-lgbtq legacy in asia by tessa wong for bbc news till today 377 continues to exist in various forms in several former colonies in asia such as pakistan singapore bangladesh malaysia brunei myanmar and sri lanka Penalties range from 2 to 20 years in prison. She goes on to say that in Muslim-majority populations, Sharia law can expose LGBT people to more severe punishments. India is not included in this list that she made because up until 2018, homosexuality was a crime that permitted the police and court system to punish people with life in prison. In a paper called An Analysis of Conversion Therapy in India, The Need to Outlaw and the Called Sociocultural Concerns, by Winnie Devgan and Anubhav Das, illustrate the push of conversion therapy by religious communities in the West and the opposition they face in the general Indian public. Because of its normality in ancient Hindu dharma, 
The problem, however, they state, is because social stigma, similarly found in other British colonized countries, which was imported from the British Empire after they criminalized homosexuality in the year 1860 based on Christian beliefs. Hence, the opposition from Hindus against the criminalization of conversion therapy can be based on the stigmatized social and cultural grounds, which include family honor and reputation, often fed with notions from the patriarchy. What do you think about that quote? This, this quote was actually very eye-opening. I think the specific part about how the social stigma was imported from the British Empire, that's something that I think I'll take away with me because it's just another example where like, Indian traditions have been poisoned by British ideals. I think in terms of the Indian population pushing back against conversion therapy, I'm actually very surprised that they pushed back I also think this connects with India's mentality as a collectivist society versus like let's say the western ideal of individualistic whereas if for example someone was forced to conversion therapy and died by suicide the Indian public might feel the repercussions of that and might feel sad by that where it's not the individual's fault it's like the, the society didn't support this person enough so I think there could be some ties to that I just I think it's it's very interesting that the ideal of uh, family honor and reputation came from the British and it wasn't specifically something that was always there in Indian culture because I think a lot of Indian culture, especially in America, is rooted in what does the other person think. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, so I agree. A lot of what, what was previously said, so kind of add something on top of that, I'm, I think the idea of conversion therapy is and the people who support it are so hypocritical and I don't want to make any generalizations but there's a view of the LGBT community of like shoving queerness in other people's faces and down their throats where here it's the same thing of shoving the idea of being straight in queer people's faces and I think that just further perpetuates the idea of that being heterosexual is the norm or the standard. And it's just funny to me that like people think that conversion therapy works. And I don't know if it's because they genuinely are so uneducated in thinking that it'll work or as a way of they know what they're doing and they're trying to erase us. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of think back to when we were having that entire debate in America where they were like we should allow a third bathroom for transgender individuals and people who I don't identify with the binary and how people were like no I don't want my daughter being in a room with a man who's dressed like a woman because I'm scared that he'll do something and it's like you're doing the exact same thing to us and it's like again you said it's just so hypocritical that Things like that happening are just very rare and conversion therapy and people forcing being straight down someone's throat is more prevalent in society yeah. than yeah. something like that. And I think in this in this country and especially in India, veering away from what is perceived as normal, especially in India, is dangerous. And that could be if you veer away from normal, you're going to get hurt, maybe by colonialism or whatever that happened. So the idea that I'm not mentally ill because I am queer is something that I think 
a lot of Indian society does not understand because A, they probably haven't experienced that themselves or they've heard horror stories of like propaganda about how queer people are demons or whatever. And I just, I think I like really echo what both of you are saying where the conversion therapy is forced on our throats or a lot of people in America's throats. So while like being queer is not forced on their throat, like we're not physically knocking at their door asking them to be gay, right? <laughs> like I feel like that's something yeah. to, to know. And I think it also just comes back to like invalidating queer identity because if they don't see it as something that's real and it's just either made up, then they have no reason to support it. So if it's just something to like, if they think it's gonna like hurt their child or change their child or whatever, then they just want to like get rid of it so it doesn't end up veering away from the normal. Yeah. It's more like all we're asking as queer people is like, just be nice. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's no shoving it down your throat. It's just be nice. Don't be mean. Don't be a horrible human being. Exactly. And yeah. this, I think, especially in America, it, a lot of it does tie with Christianity because there is some line in the Bible that people believe where it says like two men or two people of the same sex should not kiss or whatever. Share the same bed. Exactly. Where it, when it was retranslated, it was actually like, do not share a bed with a younger boy. So if queer oppression is just because of a mistranslation, I think that's also really crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Do you think that had the British not colonized India, the Hindu-majority country would have stood up for these particular human rights? Or do you think these aspects of family honor and reputation have been ingrained in our culture since the beginning? I think if colonization hadn't happened in India, this, this idea of homosexuality being wrong or a sin might have not existed. From what I know about ancient India is it was a very open, free place where there was a lot of things happening and like science, technology, whatever was happening, but there wasn't um, that much of a restriction on expression because at that time there was no morally bad thing associated with homosexuality. I think had there not been colonization, like mobile colonization or British colonization, India could have been a place where homosexuality could have been something that been okay with. But I think after um, these colonizations kind of took over India and indoctrinated people against what India had originally become, like been, I think that's like probably the reason why a lot of Indian people now are so against it because it's been so ingrained and so taught. And yeah. And that kind of ties back into like the Catholicism and Catholic schools, like these vulnerable kids are going into these schools and learning more about Christian values and kind of leaving the ancient Hindu values behind. And I like how you kind of touched on how there are a lot of still science advancements going on in India. Like when I recently visited Rajasthan, we visited this place called Jantar Mantar and I think a Mughal king had built it. And he was discovering the axis of the Earth's, like, the rotation and stuff, like, well before all the other European scientists were even, like, thinking about it. And he, like, had calculated what due north was without ever even looking at, like, a satellite or map. Or, like, he didn't have a clear picture of what the world even looked like at that point. So I think that we often forget that we're taught in schools that these European scientists came in and had all these scientific advancements 
but we don't even acknowledge the fact that there are so many other people around the world doing these things way before them. Exactly. I think just one more thing to add specifically about that. It's it's always that saying that history is written by the victors. So after Europe, during when Europe was in the Dark Ages, the Islamic Empire was thriving, right? It had so much education, math, so much was thriving, but because the power of disease, guns, warfare, the history was rewritten by victors, the Europeans. And it's, it's funny now because if we were to teach about the Islamic Empire, a lot of people in America, like especially, specifically white people, would be upset and not believe it and think it's tied to some Islamic propaganda. <laughs> yeah. So it's just frustrating being South Asian and like being a person of color and not being able to access your own history because it's either hidden from you or it's just like buried really deep down. Yeah, and even like in schools we were taught the Islamic Empire was barbaric and they never talk about the good things that it did for society. Exactly. Well, so what do you think, C? I think for me, it's a little harder to say because I personally don't have as much knowledge about Indian history the way I do about American history. Like in school, we've been taught the past 200, 300 years of American history, but not as much of a focus on India, but I would like to believe that if colonialism hadn't happened, that it would be much more accepted than it is today because there's nothing like strictly written or stated saying that homosexuality or the non-binary gender is wrong. Like, I don't know what the exact word is, but there's a term in Hindi for the third gender and I think just having that term existing shows that it's something that was accepted and even celebrated before colonialism happened. So I would like to think that the generation that we currently know, if they had grown up before colonialism happened, didn't see the after effects of it, they would be much more accepting of it. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for answering that question honestly. This question is kind of personal. How do you think that all of this has impacted your experience with coming out and being around Indians and non-Indians as a queer individual? So in terms of how it's like being with Indian people, I think the idea of queerness is very scary. And I think just something I've noticed is I'm more reluctant to come out to people who identify as South Asian, even my peers, because I'm either afraid it's gonna come back to my family or like reflect poorly on me. I think that's like some subconscious bias. I kind of know where like their values or the values they've been taught so it's kind of scary crossing that boundary and on the flip side it's like if I were to tell Indian people or my community that I'm queer it would hurt more if they ended up hurting me if that makes sense so like if they said something off-putting about being gay or something like that that's even more hurtful because they know the situation of what it's like to be South Asian in this country and also living with parents who don't understand. And in regards to people who are non-Indian queer people, like individuals, I think I've had experiences with white queer people and they were my first experience with like meeting queer people in real life. Well, it was good to meet queer people. I think we operate on such different levels that I they might not understand the level of of like difficulty I have to go through because there's so much tradition and history tied to being Indian American and like having an Indian ethnicity. I think one of the big things is 
they don't have to necessarily worry about how it reflects in society as a white person but like for me i have to represent being south asian and in the climate that we're in like being queer is so frowned upon like we don't want to add another bad thing to our south asian name it's even just like when you go out in public the first thing people see is that you are brown exactly like you already have that pasted on your body exactly um and like adding another like minority that is oppressed just kind of adds to that and so like even me as a queer person I found myself not wanting to like dress certain ways just because I didn't want to be like perceived in a negative way because I already had that like I'm a woman and I'm brown exactly it's like it's so funny because I always think about there's so many odds stacked against me that like like you said like you don't want to like appear to be queer because that's just another thing people will pick at you where like you don't fit the mold of a straight white man I'm almost the exact opposite so that's like definitely a tricky situation to navigate so any attention I don't draw to myself and I think the way I present myself in the world is to protect myself whereas I feel like white queer people might not have that layer of racism that they have to also battle so their only battle becomes being queer so that's why they can use it as their like shield while I've been dealing with it my entire life yeah it's I mean like obviously like being queer is a lifelong thing that you know you're ever since a young age we've all like been like why do I feel this way (laughs) when I look at Deepika Padukone but like yeah I just there's certain levels of like oppression that some people just you know wouldn't understand it's just I can't be loud and proud about my queerness because I already have to be loud and proud about my brownness exactly so it's like it's it's like the the playing game where because my brownness was the first thing I noticed about me it's almost like I have to defend that like I was saying like I have to like prove that I'm a good brown person and brown culture is something to be celebrated and I have to put my queerness to the back burner yeah because I I don't have time to also be proud of that yeah what about you see yeah so yeah to before answering the main question like can like piggybacking off of that previous comment like in the past, like, if I've come out or I've had this conversation with people for the first time, a lot of responses I've gotten is like, oh, wow, like, I couldn't tell or like, whoa, I would have never guessed. And it's almost like, like, good for you. Like, you hit it so well, like, good job. And it's like, that's kind of ingrained now. It's almost where if you're straight passing, you did a good job at hiding it and like you're succeeding and being brown you can't really hide that like we're brown we're dark darker than white people and it's something where white queer people especially men like they can be straight passing cis passing and are white or white passing it's like they do have the most privilege even though there's some aspect of them that is that's oppressed oppressed yeah so there is some aspect of being oppressed but you pass as if you have the privilege and then going back to the main question i hadn't ever thought about like how colonialism would have an impact on my coming out experience and i think it has completely altered it because after colonialism like both here in india and also here in the united states it's it became such a taboo aspect or like such a 
wrong thing to identify as. So it definitely altered my experience. And adding on to that, I think it's been a very isolating experience um, because I first came out when I was 16. And even that, like looking back at it, I if I could change it, I wouldn't have come out at that time. But that's just what the situation was. And in 10th grade at the high school that I went to, I didn't personally know any other queer people and for the more queer people of color. So it was so isolating that like my friends tried to support me, but I was also almost seen as like the advocate, like, oh, I'm supposed to know like everything. And I'm like, I know nothing. So it's definitely weird. And like the older I got and came to college and met so many more other people of color who also were queer, I felt so much more comfortable. And I know I have to cherish this because this doesn't happen very often unless you're in very liberal big cities and you see people of all kinds. So I think this has been one of the periods of life where it's gone from very isolating to very rewarding of having other queer South Asian people in my life. Yeah, um, adding on to what I said, when I think about the LGBTQ plus like rights movement in America at least, as a brown person, the only thing I can relate it to is like how we learn in school about like the suffragette movement, how white women were only really fighting for their own rights and all the people of color and all the women of color weren't like really, like they were basically put on the back burner and their rights really came later and nobody really thought about them. And I think it's just, it ties back into colonialism where it's like the white value and their values are just more important and considered in society. Yeah, and even even the idea, like you said, they're just more considered in society, they're almost considered more as the default, where I feel like if I were in a room with other white queer people, their first instinct to look at me wouldn't probably be that I'm also queer. It would just be like, oh, this person's brown, and like, see, or one of us mentioned, I think C mentioned, it's like, they would, some people might say that, oh, you hit it so well, like, the straight people, but on the other side, the gay people might, might not even consider us queer, because we don't dress the way they do, and we're not as proud as them, and it's almost like, oh, you're not as queer as we are, like, it's not a competition, yeah, exactly, it's, it's, it's not a competition, and it's like, I feel like sometimes we don't have support from either side, so we're just forced to either hide it or just try to find people who are people of color and also queer. Yeah. So the ancient Hindu text that has been followed for centuries suggests that these values that are so ingrained in our culture today did not exist prior to colonialism. Transsexualism plays an important role in the Hindu dharma. In several religious texts, it is said that the avatar of Lord Vishnu came down from the heavens by the name of Mohini. Mohini was a goddess that was sent down to defeat a rakshas, or a demon, named Bhammasur. Bhammasur was a demon that burned everything he touched. Mohini seduced him and made him dance, which caused him to burn himself. This is one of many instances of different divinities being gender fluid. Another divinity that presents as gender fluid is Shiva, the destroyer. In Are the Ishwara Concept, Brain and Psychiatry, a paper by B. N. Ravish, it is stated that it conveys that Shiva and Shakti are one and the same. A human being is not a pure unisexual organism. Each human organism bears the potentiality of both male and female sex. According to Transsexualism in Hindu Mythology by Srinivasan and Chandra Karan, 
Transsexual, transgender, and third gender individuals were held to the same status as cisgender individuals. They go on to explain that Sanskrit is the oldest language in the world and it contains pronouns for three genders, masculine, feminine, and gender neutral. An example of this modern-day third gender individual is the Hijras of Gujarat. A colonial document describes them as deviants, but in modern-day scholars as of 2014, the Indian Supreme Court refers to them as an alternative gender or third gender individual. The Gujarati Hijras practice the embodiment of a divine being called the Mother Goddess or Bahuchara Mata. Hijras identify as a third gender of devotional reasons. Their being third gender is more attributed to their devotion and strong link to the Bahuchara Mata. They view their castration and wearing of sadis to their strong link to the Bahujara Mata as her children to achieve nirvani, in other words, to achieve being with her. Their view on third gender is very unlike the Western view on being non-binary or transgender, where they view themselves as, I was born this way. During British rules, hijaras were not allowed to express themselves under the Indian Penal Code 377. The British government wanted to restore the binary vision of gender, which they believe that the hijaras challenged, by Guhin Hero in 2022. Notably, in India, it is said that having physical contact with hijras is really beneficial. They are said to have power to remove negative elements and the money that is given to them automatically becomes blessed. Therefore, if they ever give money back to you, willingly that is, it is a great blessing. However, hijras are still placed under constant oppression post-British rule due to the new societal norms. Lastly, I wanted to touch on the Kama Sutra. The Kama Sutra is an ancient Indian Sanskrit text that depicts sensuality, eroticism, and emotional fulfillment in life through sexual relations. This book contains various pictures of sexual positions that can elicit the most pleasure, and it contains various kinds of sexual encounters, including gay and lesbian sex, which proves that pre-colonization, this was a normalized topic. How do you view the Kama Sutra now? I remember I learned about it in Balavihar from an older kid in like 6th grade and I was flabbergasted. Do you think that your view of the Kama Sutra now is influenced by colonialism? I think in regards to the Kama Sutra, when I first realized it, I think I was at like a, a, an old enough age where I had gone past puberty so it wasn't like some random shocking thing. And I actually honestly remembered being a little proud because for as much as I've known like the Indian people in my life have been very conservative, like whether it's like covering skin or whatever, but this idea that we actually have something in ancient Hinduism that celebrates the body and celebrates sex is so heartwarming to me because I think one of the biggest things about queerness and like the, the idea of coming out and being so open is if I'm going to, if I'm going against tradition, I think my parents still have kind of an archaic view or people in my family have that archaic view of what it means to be Hindu, but I feel more validated by the historical context that I've read in the Kama Sutra because Indian culture was never supposed to be preventing people from hiding or was never supposed to be for hiding and like covering the body and like shaming people for a natural part of our body. It was to celebrate the, like the physical form and to like explore and I I'm so glad there was there's not like how does this not like evidence or like I don't feel like I'm disappointing anyone as much yeah. anymore yeah. because I have ancient Indian texts to support me if that yeah. makes sense even with like women in India like Saudis like never used to cover your breasts like exactly when it was after the British came that you were supposed to wear a blouse underneath your Saudi like 
breasts weren't sexualized in ancient Indian culture at all. It was just like a normal part of the body. Exactly. And you can actually see that when you go to temples. I yeah. think as a kid, I was all shocked. And it's something that parents have always glossed over. And that's where one of the, the places I really feel colonialism has been detrimental is not letting people express themselves and like show their body how they want to. And I think I'm glad that ancient Indian temples still exist. So we're not erasing what India used to be like. What do you think, C? I, like growing up as a teenager and even as young as middle school, I don't think I had ever heard of the Kama Sutra or like it was just briefly mentioned. Like even to this day, I have not seen it or read it. And I think part of that is from Indian parents not wanting to talk about anything taboo and it's whether it's actually taboo or just an uncomfortable conversation I feel like they're very avoidant and I think that's like one of the downfalls of my childhood because like in school in like American high school where we learn about sexual education one it's in the perspective of non-people of color and also like irrelevant but this also goes to like medical school like anything to do with the body it's usually taught in this perspective of a white body and further than that like the Kama Sutra having text on not just heterosexual sex but also homosexual sex that's another downfall of the American sexual education system because it's all cisgender heterosexual and there's no variety so one this being already considered a taboo subject I think it's even worse for queer kids because they they already feel uncomfortable with this if they haven't had this conversation with their parents and one step further they're like oh I don't even fit in in the norm of like American sexual education so what do I do so I think it would have been helpful to see it or like know about it growing up yeah yeah like even in school I remember like the only aspect of like gay sex that we ever learned about was that like AIDS was heavily associated with being gay, like back in the like I think sixties. Sixties, eighties, yeah. 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 And so yeah, I think there definitely needed to be more education on gay sex other than just STDs you can contract from being gay. Yeah. And just an additional note on the Kama Sutra. Like other than British colonialism, I think white culture has almost fetishized the Kama Sutra. I've seen yes, it in yeah. a lot of T V shows or whatever where it's, it's actually, it's kind of sad because, like, I think white perspective on sex is very different than Indian perspective or ancient Indian perspective on sex. So just seeing people, like, make fun of the text or, like, joke about it lightheartedly is, like, somewhat upsetting. Because the Kama Sutra is, like, part of other sutras which, like, help about, like, medicine, education, math, things like that. It's just because it's, it's another part of life like Kama Sutra, like it's it's about sex. It's just upsetting to see like it. You wouldn't see someone making fun of the Quran that easily. That yeah, makes sense. yeah. Because it was just so normalized in Indian society. Like no one was writing that like, oh my God, look at these pictures yeah. I'm drawing. Like yes. it was like I'm educating people on like the best ways to do this certain like just normal part of life. But now it is like very fetishized and like people don't even pronounce it correctly. Yeah. And then they talk about it on TV shows. Yeah. I'm in the try this out but it's like it's not about like i think ancient indian and like society and hinduism it's like it wasn't just about trying it out 
it comes back to finding the oneness in yourself and understanding yourself. Yeah. I think another big downfall that I honestly didn't even realize until this conversation is that, like, especially sexual education, it's so centered around heterosexual sex and, like, any mention of gay sex, it's associated with AIDS or HIV. Yeah. I literally, until, like, the end of high school, I thought women couldn't get HIV. I thought women couldn't, like, get AIDS because that's what was associated with just gay sex. And another thing, like, they talk about abstinence and preventative measures to avoid pregnancy. And the only use of, the only use of condoms that we learned about in high school was to prevent pregnancy. So I was under the assumption that, like, gay men didn't need condoms because they can't get pregnant. But that's so wrong. It's not just about not getting pregnant. It's about like avoiding STDs and HIV. And this is not the stuff that we're taught. And in the past, it's been a cycle of like, oh, gay men are the reason for HIV and AIDS. And it's because we don't have the proper knowledge. And like the more and more taboo this topic is, the worse and worse it's gonna get for young queer kids. Yeah, Yeah. and especially like, it's just so funny to see that America was more focused on had making gay people not have sex with each other where like they didn't even help the dying gay men yeah. like it was such a crisis and it's it comes back to the idea of like sometimes not viewing queer people as people but rather just problems in society yeah it, like I feel like in high school like what you mean mm-hmm. by they didn't talk about gay sex enough to where they only talked about HIV it's like mm-hmm. it just further stigmatizes being yeah. queer it's like you don't learn anything from mm-hmm. that really so, yeah. yeah, and that all the way ties it back to like how some schools in America are so rooted in Christianity and popular Christianity where maybe in the past that's not what the Bible was supposed to say. Like there's many, there's much evidence that it was just a mistranslation, but because of like the demonization of queerness and associating that with like being not sinful, it's like pervaded so much into today's culture, especially in America. Whereas there, people are thinking gay men are gonna molest kids, whereas it turns out to be Catholic priests <laughs> who are doing it. I, it's, it's just frustrating, really, to see how, because of colonialization, because of some aspects of Christianity, my identity is stymied and like, thought of as wrong. Now, I want to reiterate how the modern-day LGBTQ plus movement in India has been affected by the British Raj. Again, I want to remind you of the Penal Code 377 and its implications on modern-day Indian society. It is not unlikely to see hijras all over India. I have seen many myself in Mumbai, Maharashtra. Although transgender individuals that do not identify as hijras has been systematically oppressed in various ways. In a study conducted by Jacqueline Gomez de Jesus, transsexual women in India and Brazil were interviewed and given surveys. The results indicated that trans women in both countries had a hard time finding employment. We ourselves are products of Indian immigration, and our families have carried over the values that we have brought from India. The generational trauma of colonialism persists today. In McGoldrick et al., the book, Ethnicity and Family Therapy, they discuss that it is important to recognize family values and backgrounds to truly understand the experience of different LGBTQ individuals. In therapy, they often compare the struggles of white queers to the struggles of queers who are people of color and or immigrants or immigrant children. Moreover, in Mohan Thanushri's book, The Legal, Colonial, and Religious Context of Gay and Lesbian Mental Health in India, he describes the current human rights movement in the LGBTQ plus community today and how modern-day India's 
view on homosexuality and transsexuality has impacted the community today. He interviews seven members of different LGBTQ plus rights movements in India, including reproductive and public health rights, an informal counseling and peer advising group, and even a college-level GSA leader at the Indian Institute of Technology. All of them agreed that gay and lesbian individuals in India commit suicide on an annual basis due to lack of social acceptability, pressure from families, and even a lack of acceptability within themselves. Many of them had their own stories of familial rejection. They discuss how this leads to the lack of a support system and thus the feelings of isolation and otherness. Many of these organizations offer informal mental health services because of discrimination and homophobia among actual accredited mental health services in India. They receive on-the-job training, and they are not actually licensed or qualified to be giving such services, but because of lack of accepting qualified therapists and psychologists, many LGBTQ plus people have taken this route to health. This issue has led to a huge distrust of LGBTQ plus youth towards mental health facilities in India. In these interviews, the people also mention the copious amounts of corruption in the Indian justice system, which leads extortion, sexual assault, blackmail, harassment, and, and perpetuates violence against the queer community, including hijras, in the name of the Penal Code 377, pre-2018 when it was decriminalized. Although now that the Penal Code 377 has been decriminalized, there are still other laws in place that allow the government to systematically oppress the community, like the Obscenity Act and the Public Nuisance Act. Another thing that was brought up was the Transgender Persons Rights Protection Bill of 2016, which was meant to empower the hijra communities. However, instead it turned out to be very problematic. It forbade hijras from begging in public, which is basically one of their main sources of income other than sex work, because most places won't hire hijras out of transphobia. It also empowered families of hijras to disown and evict them, which led to a boom in the homeless population of hijras in India. Thankfully, this bill was never passed as a law due to the Right of Privacy Act from the Supreme Court in 2017. When asked how they felt about colonialism and how it affected the treatment of the LGBTQ plus community in India, unanimously, all of the interviewees agreed that the pre-British India was very accepting and progressive in this topic. The Western culture has been imposed on many previous colonies of Britain, and it has impacted the mental health and resources that the LGBTQ plus communities these countries need. However, as a country, India seems to be trying to move in the right direction. Recently, in the movie Majama, starring the absolute queen herself, Madhuri Dixit, she comes out to her daughter after a spat they have about not accepting her daughter's profession. Her daughter is a PhD in gender and sexuality studies. This spat somehow gets secretly recorded by someone in the window and Dixit's character gets outed to her whole community. The movie follows her as she navigates her life with her husband and children after this betrayal. Another movie that came out called Chandigar Kare Ashiki, starring Ayushman Garahana, depicts the boyfriend of a transgender woman. The movie follows him as he comes to terms with this means for his own sexuality and the struggles that she, the girlfriend, had to go through in her life to come to terms with who she really is and what the treatment of trans individuals is like, including medical care and mental health of trans and gay individuals. Both these movies dive into the invisibility of the LGBTQ plus community and the lack of resources available to them. There are not many resources available to research how colonialism affected all of the mental health resources of Indian immigrants that live all over the world. Can you talk about how, after hearing all of this, how you think that this has personally affected your life and your mental health? 
I think if I were to first broadly talk about this and then go into the mental health aspect, mm-hmm. key takeaway point that I just want to like emphasize or just like highlight is there's so much that colonialism has ruined in the world. While for some people it's physically destroying homes, but also it's indoctrinating people and not learning from other cultures. All colonialism has done is take, for example, spices, things like that, take like people themselves and tying that back to America and like society now it's like we're trying to unlearn colonialism and like that's what some like let's like white queer people are trying to like push back against that but it's just hurt so much that the Indian people back then were not it's not like we were barbaric or uncivilized I kind of want some aspects of society now to recognize that a lot of people of color communities had it right the first time and you need to recognize that and maybe learn from us and all of this, like the post-colonial society, especially in India, is, is so toxic and it's almost like, it's, it's super ironic that Indian people ha- like have the shutters on or like they don't want to look back on the good parts of society that were there and they're choosing to keep what they consider is proper Western culture. So in regards to like the mental health of Indian queer people who live in India, like I can only sympathize with them so much because I couldn't imagine not having any resources or being afraid to be stoned to death or killed because of my identity. Additionally, because mental health is not something India really focuses on because it's seen as something that's not real or not needed to be talked about, which could be linked to colonialism again because for all this time a lot of people, especially our parents, had to worry about food on the table and pushing against racism. So they had no time to think about their own mental health. So how I feel about Indian queer people now are they're probably some of the strongest people there, especially the ones who are able to advocate for themselves. And that's how I feel about people of color here who are queer because it's so hard to be the one that sticks out and advocate for yourself in a society where every part of you is seen as wrong. Like whether it's my race, I'm not white. Whether it's my gender, I'm not a male. Or my queerness, I'm not, I don't fit into the box that is supposedly the good one, the non-sinful one, the one that's supposed to succeed in society. So all, all this pressure and all this adds on to like the simple pressure of living life as a 22 year old. Why do I have to think about how this is gonna relate to the world? Like why can't I just live my life and no one worry about what I have to do? Yeah. And I kind of want to touch on how you said that colonialism just has taken um, because not a lot of people talk about what Winston Churchill actually did in India because he is so celebrated in our like history. In school we were taught he was such a great man, he did so much, but in reality he was taking food and resources out of India during World War II when India wasn't even involved in World War II and giving it to his own soldiers which caused hundreds of famines throughout all of India. And in addition to that he took millions of Indians over to World War II and put them on the front lines of World War II and about five million Indians died in World War II in a war that they weren't even a part of. It really has just taken and taken and taken. They have taken our land, taken our resources, taken jewels from the Taj Mahal, taken like our queer identities with them. So yeah, I liked how you touched on all colonization did was take from the countries that they the, colonized. And basically brainwashed them to think that they didn't deserve any of that. Yeah. And it wasn't, the, the Western civilization was actually the best one. And I think 
that's something that I, I hope people now realize is that just because we're living in the 21st century with technology and things like that doesn't mean that the, the, the people that don't have that aren't fulfilled with their life or aren't need to be so-called civilized. Like they're civilized enough. They probably know more than we do. There's a mental health crisis here. So I think it's important to respect each person's culture and like learn from it rather than appropriate it. Yeah. Even now, like the national food of Britain is butter chicken. Yeah. yeah. Which is like, that is an Indian food that yeah. originated in like, exactly. What are you doing? But see, did you want to add on to that question? Yeah. So especially on the mental health aspect, growing up here and having two minority identities of being brown and being queer, I still feel like I am so much more privileged than those queer individuals in countries where mental health is not as advocated for as it is here. Even though it is expensive here and so is all healthcare, I feel like just the fact that we have so many therapists and mental health resources, it's a blessing because we have these outlets to talk about it and kind of intellectualize like why we're feeling what what we're feeling and why we're feeling it whereas people in countries such as India don't have that and I feel like we're the first generation to start destigmatizing the idea of mental health and getting help for it through therapy because the more and more we avoid it it snowballs and weighs heavier on future generations. I was reading somewhere where within the last 90 to 100 years, the traumas went from surviving war to then the aftermath of war, of having food on the table, then immigrating to a new country, and then financial crisis. As in, and those have all built up, like we should be happy to be in America, like we're immigrants, but we're, we should be happy to be here. And after the financial crisis, like we should be happy to have whatever money we have and be frugal about it. And now with whatever traumas we have in our generation, if we don't fix it now, it's gonna snowball into our into the future generation. So I think we definitely have to destigmatize it and I can see that happening. Yeah, I really like how you acknowledge the privilege that you have here living in America, even though we still go through things as brown people that people in India might not necessarily go through just because everyone there is brown. Mm -hmm. I really like how you touch on the privilege that we have here. We have access to mental health resources. We have access to finding a brown therapist that would accept our identity, even though there are few and far between. Yes. It's like we have that privilege of finding those people. And in India, that privilege is very rare. Yeah, and I feel like that's why I feel some like, duty to like break my generational trauma where like first I, I think the first step would be educating my parents about like the trauma that they have been through because I think honestly Indian parents need therapy they need to unlearn some things and I think the mentality for the past 100 years in India is just push through like push through colonization push through the war push through immigration or immigrating to a new country but I, I don't want to push anymore I want to sit and I want to explore and sit with what I have and identify what I'm feeling. If I end up having kids later on, they're not affected by a hundred years of generational trauma. Yeah, and that's why, I mean, the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once doesn't have to do with South Asian trauma, but it does have to do with Asian trauma. And 
the process of like generational trauma through immigration and things like that the mom in that movie just she doesn't understand what being queer means yeah. because she wasn't taught exactly and it's because their their perception is that once you come to america our kids are going to be okay that mentality is there when you stray away from what they understand is normal hey this is different and this is wrong and you're just trying to create more like drama for yourself whereas yeah. no it's what i've like developed into being yeah that about wraps up our podcast thank you so much for coming on our show today and giving us your valuable insight on this topic we'll see you next time